So we're going to start James tonight. And as I was reading James, it's a short book, it's five chapters, and sort of two preliminary comments before we start. Uh, comment number one is I got no idea why anybody wrote this book. It's written clearly to Hebrews, people who know the scriptures. So it starts off, James, a servant of God, of the Lord, Yeshua, Messiah, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. Greetings. So it's clearly aimed to people who understand or have read or are familiar with the scriptures. It's basically a wisdom kind of a letter, and I understand that, but it gets kind of starchy some places. And as he's yelling at his addressees, in Paul or Peter, when they yell at one of their addressees, you know what the reason is. There's something that they need to correct, and so they go into correction mode and tell people that they need to shape up. Understand that completely. James seems to go into correction mode, but it isn't really clear why. One of the things I've heard it described as is a sermon. Okay, that makes sort of sense. But again, it's sort of a broadcast sermon to the 12 tribes in the dispersion, which isn't very targeted, if that makes sense to you. My Bible program here has an introduction. I'm looking at English Standard, and I am assuming that the introductions are written by the English Standard translators. And the English Standard is a good translation, and I enjoy it. It reads nicely and, and so forth. But they go into this long thing about how James is not in conflict with Paul. And what they say is, well, Paul's letters emphasize grace, and James's letters seem to emphasize works, so seems like we got a conflict there. I don't see any conflict whatsoever. I mean, they're certainly speaking in different, different modes, if you will, both different modes of speech and different audiences. So it's natural that they would emphasize different things, but the idea that Paul is teaching grace to the exclusion of behavior is just silly. I mean, it, it just isn't true. Now, much of the Sunday church sort of looks at it that way, for example, in Galatians, where Paul goes off on works of the law and says, boy, if you guys depend on works of the law, you're going to lose your salvation and it's going to really just be terrible. So a lot of the Sunday church regards the Torah as being synonymous with Paul's works of the law, which it really isn't. Works of the law is a rabbinic term and has to do with oral Torah and such. Obeying Torah is just obedience. It's the word of God, and God expects you to obey it. Or another way to say it, obeying the Torah is enlightened self-interest because your life goes a lot better if you obey the Torah. There are parts of it that if you don't obey it are outright sin, that's where you're going into rebellion and so forth. And there are other parts where it's just really good advice and best heeded. So I don't see a conflict, and I found it fairly interesting that the translators felt it necessary to 
put in a disclaimer that says, James isn't conflicting with Paul at all. As I say, I just find the necessity for such a disclaimer kind of interesting. The other thing about James is there isn't anything especially new in James. I don't know how far we'll get tonight, but virtually everything that James talks about is essentially in Proverbs. And in fact, James has been called by some commentators as the Proverbs of the New Testament, as if somehow the Proverbs of the New Testament are going to be different than the Proverbs of the Old Testament. They're not. And I'll show you that as we go through. Again, just remind you, since everybody's been here when I said that, there's three voices in Scripture. There's the voice of the priest, the voice of the prophet, and the voice of the king. Now, anybody can write in any one of those three voices. Yeshua at various times speaks in each one of those three voices. So the voice of the prophet or the voice of the priest or the voice of the king doesn't depend on who the speaker is. It depends on what is being said. So the voice of the priest is where you teach Torah, you explain the Torah to people. The voice of the prophet speaks for God. Anybody can be a prophet. God decides who the prophets are. And the women can be shepherds, can be rich people, can be poor people. God decides that. And then the voice of the king is basically voice of human wisdom. So what James is doing here is mostly the voice of human wisdom which is why I'm saying it's mostly Proverbs, which is fine. One of the things about Scripture is Scripture doesn't change, but people do. So as culture changes and societies change, our understanding of the Scriptures changes. Because our language changes, our social environment changes, and the meanings of words change. So if you read the words in a different culture than they were written in, sometimes they need some explanation. Because it isn't really clear in a particular culture what's being said. So one of the things that prophets do is they will repeat the words of the Torah updated for the particular culture they're speaking to. So one of the ways you can look at James then is he is speaking words of Proverbs updated for the culture he's writing to. So if we assume that Solomon wrote Proverbs you have a number of centuries that have passed since that was written. So what happens is societies drift, societies change, and so the idea that you're writing an updated version of something that was written centuries ago is perfectly understandable. For example, if I were to give a millennial a copy of Kipling, who was written in the end of the 19th century, they would struggle over what was being said. Kay's reading O. Henry to the grandkids, and they don't have any context to understand it. So the idea of updating, if you will, the classics, in this case Proverbs, certainly makes a lot of sense. 
Proverbs, assuming they were written by Solomon, are a thousand years prior to James. James is thought to be one of the biological brothers of Yeshua. There are several Jameses in Scripture, and James is updated. It's actually Yaakov, Jacob. And basically the president of the Messianic synagogue in Jerusalem was James. You see him in Acts, uh, what is it, Acts 11 or Acts 15, somewhere in there, with the Council of Jerusalem. So the idea that this could be the brother of Yeshua is very possible. He doesn't particularly identify himself other than that he's a messianic believer, but most people believe that's who it is. So having said all of that stuff, let's jump in to James and what I'll do for a while. I'm not going to do it for the whole book just because it would be constant. But as we read some of these things, I will take you to a corresponding passage in Proverbs so you can see that he's saying basically the same thing in slightly different words. Start at the beginning then. James, a servant of God and of the Lord Yeshua Messiah to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greeting. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness, and let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. This is perseverance. The world is difficult. It's designed to be difficult. And if you're going to get anywhere, you've got to be persistent. And I can give you a proverb that says much the same thing. Proverbs 19.22 is fairly close. What is desired in a man is steadfast love, and a poor man is better than a liar. So the idea of steadfast love, which is chesed, is consistency. And then the fear of the Lord leads to life, and whoever has it rests satisfied and will not be visited by harm. Go back to James. Let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Back to the proverb. The fear of the Lord leads to life. Whoever has it rests satisfied. He will not be visited by harm. You see the correlation there? Verse 5. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. Easiest place to find that is in Proverbs 2. And I'll pick it up in verse 6. For the Lord gives wisdom... From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk in integrity, guarding the paths of justice and watching over the way of his saints. So if you lack wisdom, the idea here is ask for it, and wisdom comes from God. James then continues, which the proverb does not. So if any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting, for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
Now, the term double-minded shows up twice in Scripture, both in the New Testament. It is not an Old Testament phrase. What is an Old Testament phrase, which is the same thing, which is what I just read earlier from Proverbs 19, is steadfast. Steadfast shows up all over the Proverbs. Shows up all over the Psalms, too. And the idea there is, of course, being consistent and constant. And what James is saying is someone who is not, in Old Testament words, steadfast, will be like a wave that is driven and tossed by the wind. He'll just go whichever way the wind blows, as opposed to the one who is steadfast, who will keep his course regardless of what the environment is like. What I'm suggesting to you here is that James is updating Proverbs for a society that is a thousand years away from when they were written. The scriptures are the basis for Hebrew society. And the idea that, boy, we know those and we're steadfast in those is not entirely true because, again, look at us. You know, the example I used of Kipling or O. Henry or something, something that was written as little as 100 years ago. And people today read them. The words don't mean the same thing to them anymore. So they don't really understand what's being said. The comment was that James is, of course, written after the resurrection. And one of the things that's going on among the messianic community is they didn't get the king they were expecting. They were expecting a king in the mode of David that was going to kick the Romans out and so forth, and that's not what they got. They got Messiah ben Yosef instead of Messiah ben David. So the idea of James saying, all right, let's go back and reground ourselves in this, I can understand, I can see that perspective. So we are all the way down to verse 9 in chapter 1. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls, its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. That's a quote from Isaiah. Isaiah 40. The grass withers, the flower fades, when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God will stand forever. So James is quoting Isaiah, which theoretically everybody is familiar with. The other thing about this is this is where it starts to get starchy. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass, he will pass away, the rich man. So, as I've said before, especially when we talked about Proverbs, there's sort of two Proverbs about wealth. One of them is wealth is a strong fortress and the other is wealth won't save you at all. The difference I've explained is that wealth being a strong fortress is in normal times. So if I go out to the parking lot, God forbid, and one of my tires is flat, I 
just whip out my credit card and call USAA and they'll show up and replace my tire and I'll pay whatever the cost of a tire is and I'll drive off and it costs me an hour's time. If someone who has a flat bank account has the same problem, it could wreck a whole week. So in that sense, wealth is a defense. The other one is if I trust in my wealth, for example, right now in the United States, it looks like things are starting to come unstuck. And I talked about this on Shabbat, the debacle on Wall Street with the Reddit traders taking down a couple of billion dollar hedge funds. Those guys were billionaires and they were trusting in their wealth. They were saying, my wealth insulates me from all of this stuff. And a bunch of cyberpunks took them down and wrecked their hedge funds. So you see the two senses there of wealth. One is it is protection against the bumps and shocks of life. But if that's what you come to depend on, it is not dependable. Now, the other thing about this, and as I said before, this is sort of why I don't necessarily understand this letter. The Torah is not against wealth. God motivates us with wealth. So what he says is, if you follow my word and you do what I tell you to do and you live life the way I tell you to live it, you're going to be blessed and you're going to be rich and your flocks and herds are going to increase and your children are going to increase and you're going to be a lender and not a borrower and on and on and on. And that's all worldly wealth. So anyway, what James is going to do here is he's going to start yelling at rich people. And certainly the tendency of wealth is to make you sit on your blessed assurance with your hands over your tummy and think that everything is fine. And so in that sense, the wealthy periodically need to be shaken up. But wealth itself is not evil. So we're all the way down to verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So stop there a minute, and if you want to give scripture, go to Jeremiah 6. Thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom, let not the mighty man boast in his might, let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness on this earth, for in these things I delight, declares the Lord. So the idea here is those who follow the Lord will have life. Verse 13, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God, for God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire, then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. This progression is really useful in understanding the words of Yeshua. The place I wanted to go is in verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured 
and enticed by his own desire. That's the two-year-old inside of us. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. And the passage that Yeshua talks about, that this explains in other words, is if you look at a woman with lust in your heart, you have committed adultery with her. What James is doing is explaining the process here. You look at a woman or a man, depending on which way you look, and if you say, wow, good job, God, and move on, there's no harm, no foul. You are designed to appreciate the beauty of other people. There's nothing wrong with that. But if you then start fantasizing and you start thinking about it, then what happens is you are conceiving the sin. The desire when it is conceived gives birth to sin. So the sin happens downstream, but the thing that causes that sin to happen is that you nurture the desire in your heart. And then at that point, you can go to Proverbs, and Proverbs says that if you follow after the wayward woman, her way leads to death. So what James is doing is explaining a process that Yeshua talks about much more concisely, as does Proverbs. Verse 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of firstfruits of his creation. And again, this echoes Paul. Yeshua was the firstfruits from the dead, and firstfruits indicates that there will be a harvest to come. So what he's saying to the Hebrews is we're the first fruits and there's going to be a harvest following on. Verse 19. Know this, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger, for the anger of man does not produce the righteousness that God requires. Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word which is able to save your souls. Let me take you to a proverb. Proverbs 14.29 Whoever is slow to anger has great understanding, but he who has a hasty temper exalts folly. Proverbs 15.1 A soft answer turns away wrath, but a harsh word stirs up anger. So James is repeating the wisdom of Proverbs in words appropriate to a society a thousand years later. And I am speculating now. By the time of Yeshua, we have had the Greeks and the Romans who have overrun and conquered Israel. And when the Greeks overran and Greek became sort of the second language of everybody in the Mediterranean basin. The Greek way of thinking became prevalent. And in fact, one of the things about the Maccabees is you had Jews, Hebrews, 
who were Greek lovers, and they were against Torah, and they were against everything that Moses said. They wanted to be Greeks. The Greek way of encoding wisdom is very different than the Hebrew way of encoding wisdom. The Greek way of encoding wisdom is in syllogistic logic. You set up something that you think you can prove is true, and then you reason from that true thing to different conclusions. It's what's taught in every school in the world. And there's nothing wrong with that. It is a good way of encoding wisdom, but it is not the Hebrew way of encoding wisdom. The Hebrew way of encoding wisdom is open-ended two-line phrases, typically, that sometimes they're longer, but mostly two lines, and the idea there is that they're to provoke thought and discussion. And when we went through Proverbs, we did a number of those, where we would read these two-line mashalim, is what they're called, and then we would open it up for discussion, and very often discussion of a two-line phrase would take up half an hour and not be exhausted. So as James is reworking Proverbs for a Greekified Hebrew people, they have the scriptures, but they're not used to thinking of the scriptures in the way that the scriptures were originally written. So what James is doing is unpacking those mashalim a little bit to make them more understandable to a culture that is awash in Greek logic. So when I'm going back to the Proverbs, you'll find that the Proverbs are almost always much more concise and much less precise than the words of James. And I will tell you, that without having the Proverbs and having studied the Proverbs from a Hebrew perspective, James, in his expansion of them, misses a lot of the meat. As I said, you know, two lines can open up half an hour or an hour's discussion about what's going on there. James unpacks them into a couple of sentences, and that sort of leaves you with the impression that, oh, well, that's all there is. And you don't go through that half-hour Midrash to unpack them. Verse 22, but be doers of the word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. For if anyone is a hearer of the word and not a doer, he is like a man who looks intently at his natural face in a mirror. For he looks at himself and goes away and once forgets what he's like. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being no hearer, who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. This is again Torah 101. God in the Torah, Moses in the Torah, says that the way you change your character is through your behavior. I mean, study is important, don't get me wrong. But study that isn't coupled with action doesn't result in change. And so what James is saying here is simply knowing the word is not sufficient. You must, in fact, act based on that word in order for the word to have any effect upon you. In other words, knowledge of the word is useful, I suppose, but it doesn't produce a change. One of the things that are hard to form 
are habits. A habit is hard to form and hard to break. Most of us think in habits in terms of things that we would rather not do. Like I have a habit of smoking. I don't anymore, but I did in 1969. I had a habit of smoking. And I quit smoking three or four times. Giving up smoking was easy. I did it three or four times. Finally took somebody shooting at me to get the message to me. But good habits are every bit as hard to break as bad ones. Of course, the example I use, you've all heard it a dozen times, is I can't go to sleep without brushing my teeth. I just don't feel right. That's a habit my mother ingrained in me at a very young age, and it's every bit as hard for me to break, in fact, harder. Smoking was when I was in my 20s. And what James is saying here is simply reading scripture isn't sufficient. You've actually got to do it because then the precepts of Scripture become habitual. Verse 26. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God and the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Now he's done two different things here. And in that sense, he's taken what's a marshal, which is bridle your tongue and then visit orphans and widows. That would be a compact marshal, and he has expanded those two things. And give you a proverb. Proverbs 21, starting in verse 23. Whoever keeps his mouth and his tongue keeps himself out of trouble. Watching your tongue is all over Proverbs. It's one of the mainstays. It's also all over rabbinic thought. It's better to keep your mouth shut and be thought a fool than to open your mouth and remove all doubt. That was a proverb from my youth. It isn't clear which one he's picking here because they're all over. I am not claiming to have landed on the particular one that James is expanding. I'm simply saying that what he's doing is consistent with Proverbs, but updated a thousand years. Now, my dad used to say, a closed mouth gathers no fist. So, it's not unique to Hebrew. Back in verse 26 again, if a person thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart. So, how is not bridling your tongue deceiving your heart? One of the things we talk about in Musar is the way to affect your nephesh, your subconscious, is through the ears, not through the eyes. And the most powerful voice you can hear is your own voice. Because you're the ultimate authority in your life. So when you speak foolishness, what happens is you feed foolishness into your subconscious And what you're doing is you're making your religion worthless in those cases. And by the way, bridling your tongue doesn't mean being silent, although being silent is certainly wise. Bridling your tongue means not speaking foolishness, not speaking falsehoods. So 
religion that is pure and undefiled before God and Father is this, visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. So again, the idea here is a chattering tongue is not an indication of a pure religion. What's an indication of a pure religion is behavior that helps widows and orphans and keeps you from the stains of the world. That's what is indication of a religion that is pure in your heart as opposed to what comes out of your mouth. In in fact, one of the things we have going for us today is what has come to be known as virtue signaling. We have people who say what they believe is the virtuous thing, but their actions are corrupt. James here could be speaking about that, saying all these things that you believe are virtuous and make you look like a good person, but in fact you're not a good person because you're not doing the things that God would have you do. I'm not going to start chapter 2, but I did something interesting. The concept was different societies place the important points of an essay in different places. So if you're reading an essay in a Greek mindset, what the essay does is sets up the premises, presents evidence of those premises, and then comes to a conclusion. That's the way a Greek thinker presents an argument. And the main point is at the end of the article because you've laid out all your evidence and so forth and boom, here it is at the end. That's not the way Hebrew does it. Hebrew puts the important stuff in the middle. And what you have in Hebrew with the chiastic structure is you have a subject introduced, then it goes to a conclusion and then it backs out and you come back to the original subject so that you see how the important stuff is nested in concepts. And until I understood this, you're reading scripture and you're reading it like a Greek and you go through one of these chiasms and say, wait a minute, I just read that. Why is he saying that again? Not understanding that the way that a Hebrew speaker or thinker emphasizes things is to put the important point in the middle and not at the beginning and the end, and the beginning and the end are then nesting around the important point. Other societies put the point at the beginning. Tell them what you want to tell them, then tell them, then tell them what you told them. That's what they used to teach us in the army. Tell them what you're going to tell them, then tell them, and then tell them what you told them. Different ways of presenting wisdom. Shama